Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session, Latin American Drug Crimes. Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning to you all. My name is Yorela Islas, and I am one of the speakers, and I will also be moderating this panel on Latin American Drug Crimes. Um, we're going to have a total of three different um, presentations. Uh, the first one will be by Jorge Mantilla. He is a PhD candidate and his dissertation looks at the ways armed groups, local gangs and law enforcement exploit, recruit and victimize migrants facing vulnerabilities in the context of ongoing proxy wars between Venezuela and Colombia. Jorge has worked as a practitioner and analyst with public agencies and international organizations on topics related to armed conflict, public safety, and drug trafficking. His current interests are crime and governance, international migration, and urban violence. His presentation is titled Street Urban Peace in Contested Informalities, the Hidden Face of Colombia's War on Drugs. Over to you, Jorge. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here, uh, putting this conference together. So this this is a presentation based on a paper um, that is um, kind of forthcoming in the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development from LOC. is based on the case of the biggest uh, open drug market in Colombia. There was uh, uh, intervened in back in 2016. And basically the paper, it's looking at three main, main questions, which are uh, the architecture of illegal drug markets, how after uh, state interventions or crackdowns, um, operators in these markets intend to adapt to these state interventions and this um, question is basically drawing on a kind of contradiction or apparently antagonism between um, public safety policies and then uh, public health policies. And is looking at how can we kind of mix or reconciliate uh, social policies with uh, organized crime control or crime control policies in the context of Latin America. And also uh, that question is also building another one, which is how everyday interactions 
from the aftermath of state interventions kind of inform these inter interagency efforts in drug security and social policies. Uh, so just um, kind of a little bit of context, um, I'm drawing on the kind of literature which is looking at criminal resilience and criminal governance, which is, as you many of you know and work in that, um, looking at how criminal groups govern based on the assumption that um, sometimes it's in the best interests of criminal groups or organized crime groups to provide public goods such as street justice, security, um, social services, and how many times, contrary to like the mainstream assumption on organized crime, let's say uh, criminals and the state are not always in opposite sides of the law. So I'm looking at contested informalities, which I define as kind of the everyday hustle that a lot of underserved communities have to go through in order to survive in the context of urban criminal control. We are talking here, as I will speak later, of the off-the-books economy that happens at the street base, such as street vending, sex work, private security, informal transportation, informal housing, and how in these urban crime-ridden areas or urban margins, these illegal markets kind of overlap with urban informality and with poverty. And there is a paradox about that, um, and is the fact that in many of these places, despite all uh, the hardship and the kind of underserved communities that live there, these markets are actually very profitable and they make a lot of money in this context of contested informalities. In the case of the Bronx, uh, following Burkert and Dewey um, kind of definition or classification of different type of markets, what happened here was that all these kind of markets were functioning in this urban crime-ridden hub. Uh, so we had markets in which the good or the service was illegal as such, such as, for example, drugs, markets of stolen legal goods, such as, for example, uh, automobiles, spare parts, or smartphones, markets of falsified, counterfeit, or forged goods, legal products trades in illegal ways, and of course, legal markets in which regulations were not observed. For example, in this case, it was the fact, as I'll show later, for example, parties or uh, liquor consumption for underaged or for teenagers. Everything of that happened. So I'm building um, 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 the first paradox in this context was, or the first question was, what happens when crime goes okay? And this is, as a criminologist, uh, we know that we kind of study crime when crime goes wrong, when there's a tar war, when the uh, homicide rate is spiking, where violence comes or where actually kind of crackdowns happens. But we often do not pay a lot of attention to the when organized crime actually goes okay. And this is the case of Bogota. You know, like Colombia has three main cities, 
And uh, the first, like there are Cali, Medellin, and Bogota. Medellin is very famous, as you can see, and you know all this history of Pablo Escobar and Medellin cartel. Cali as well had a cartel, but Bogota was never regarded as a crime city. Mm, and this was basically uh, by the fact that, the, as you can see, the homicide uh, rate per 100,000 inhabitants was very low compared to other cities. Um, this is like what David Bergman defines as a low equilibrium crime city. Is these, these are cities where there are like high crime rates in terms of, for example, robbery or property oriented crimes, but there are not actually violent cities if you consider them as a whole. The paradox too, as I was talking before, was how to make money out of the disadvantage or the most disadvantage or the slum. This is building a literature on inner cities, the slum, favelas, in the case of Colombia, you can see it as comunas, but we're talking about these underserved, underserved uh, communities. I'm looking here at what we call the micropolitics of crime, and it's basically how that crime, how that crime is organized uh, based on everyday kind of arrangements between criminals and the state. And you know, like this concept of state sponsor protection rackets from Duran Martinez and Snyder um, is looking precisely at these kinds of arrangements. So what we were saying, like seeing here was that uh, there was criminal control, law enforcement performed some uh, social control functions, local gangs, others. I don't want to kind of spend a lot of time here, but there was kind of a coordination in between criminals and the state for these uh, open air drug market kind of to work and to work properly. And using uh, crime script analysis, uh, a criminological technique kind of looking to the background process or processes that happens that need to happen uh, for this kind of organized crime where social resources need to be kind of set up. Um, this is was like the how the social order of the Bronx actually looked like, like the gray points, drug selling, stolen goods handling, and kind of diversion, bar pools, liquor stores was the way in which a person could enter this market. But the market had different kind of, you know, developments uh, regarding if you were there to buy or consume like drugs on the base of retail, or if you were kind of doing bigger transactions, trying to kind of um, stocking warehouses, arms trafficking, uh, sat satellite market supply. But here, what is important in terms of, of the research question that I was asking at the first place was how successful organizations are those that are flexible enough in order to respond with the proper amount of security and efficiency to these interventions. In this case, uh, despite that the Bronx as the urban space 
was cracked down, was demolished, and actually like an urban renewal project was ongoing. And these gangs, or local gangs, try to kind of adapt. And here, this, it's, it's a kind of very important governance in which uh, territory is regarded as a very, very important asset in order to perform criminal governance. Like some of the maintenance would say that without territorial control, criminal groups cannot perform governance. On the opposite, what I saw here in this particular case was that social control was even more important than territorial control. Um, because what happened was that there were social workers and all that is called like therapeutic policing or policing as peace building. We're talking about like mixed teams between police officers, social workers, um, counseling centers, trying to you know, rescue homeless people, drug users from the criminal control and all these kind of rules that I was telling you before, for example, mugging was not allowed inside of, of, this, of this market. So after the crackdown, Bronx tried all local gangs managing this open air drug market tried to adapt. Uh, so my, my findings are like kind of six. One of them is local gangs and law enforcement agents are not always in opposite sides of the law. I think that rather under specific circumstances, street-level bureaucracies might further enforce criminal orders. Um, as I said before, I think that uh, fixed demand, like social control, is much more important for the functioning of criminal governance than territorial control. And when groups manage to control specific populations as irregular immigrants, for example, or homeless people or drug users, drug markets are more like a social kind of dynamic than a territorial one. Um, lastly, I would say that in this case, um, cities and inclement cities or deterring the places. And lastly, uh, just like often parallel sets of regulations imposed by criminal networks might continue to operate after state. So I will leave it there by now. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you very much. I remind everyone that the questions will be made at the end, but you can still write them down in the chat. If you have a specific question for a speaker, please uh, write it down in the chat as well so we know about it. Um, so now it's my turn. Uh, my name is Yorela Islas. I have a PhD in uh, politics, languages, and international studies for the, from the University of Bath. So I'm a researcher and a consultant in national and international issues, including content transnational organized crime policies, asymmetric conflict resolution, and strategic convergence between illicit groups. Uh, my presentation uh, is titled Progressive Use of Violence as an Enabler for transnational criminal organizations, and I'm going to share it in a sec. Just give me a moment. So uh, I'm going to talk about the case of Mexico. Uh, the first thing I guess we'll need to know is that Mexico has um, 130 million inhabitants, and well, it has uh, 1,900 kilometers square. And well, since the beginning of the war on drugs, uh, we had had 
uh, more than than 8,000 deaths per year. At the beginning, we had 8,000 deaths, and then it went increasingly um, growing until we have about 22,000 deaths reported for the year 2017 and 23 reported for the year 2018. Um, now, what's about violence? The first thing we need to understand is that violence it comes from the number that we see in terms of deaths, in, term, in terms of homicides and, and crimes, right? So this is what we normally see in, in the Mexican news and the Mexican reports about organized crime, in which you have um, a spike of violence between 2006 and 2015 or 16. And this is normally, normally used in terms of, of different debates to show how much Mexico has become a violent country. However, when you see it in a time frame, you realize that in 1992 and 1993, we had spikes of violence that were uh, similar to those that we lived until 2009. And it was until later that the violence spiked forward. In terms of what this means for the country, it is usually said that Mexico is a very violent country, but the violence is localized in different states. This, the, this chart that you can see down here represents all the states in Mexico. So each line accounts for one state reporting their homicides and their violence. Now, the relevance of this is that when you compare it with the normal uh, line that we usually debate, which is the one that is on the top, the total violence in Mexico, it's very different. So considering that Mexico has a size of half of the European countries altogether, if we go back and we analyze the violence in context in each state, we can have different outcomes and realizing that not all of the states in Mexico are very violent. And this, the violence comes from different causes in different states. Now, I've ident identified different causes for the violence and that's what I'm going to present very briefly to you today. Uh, first one is, well, intercartal conflict violence. The second is intracartal conflict. Uh, the third is cartel versus gangs. The fourth, cartel versus the state. And the fifth, cartel versus the society. Again, this, the gangs can also fight the government due to military operations, creating a Medusa effect and generating eventually a war on drugs. Now, um, intercartal violence. So the main characteristics of this intercartal violence is the, the conflict between one cartel and the other one. This is due to enmities, to the assassination of family members or for the control of territories. During the 2000s, for example, the Sinaloa cartel under Chapo Guzman's leadership decided to attack uh, the cartel that was controlling the, the western part of Mexico, trying to get more control of the territory. At this point, the people that is affected is mainly the criminals and uh, civilian violence is very, very rare. The next type of violence is cartel versus gang. So at this point, the cartel differentiates from a gang in, in an aspect in which the cartels are very much organized and their, their organization is greater in size and, and strategic expansion than the gangs. Uh, now, the members of the cartels are fighting different gangs for the control. 
uh, again, uh, they're going to try to take the leadership away of, of the gangs to take control of the criminals. And well, the stronger the leadership and hierarchy of, of the organizations, the less the proclivity for violence, because they can reach agreements in which they are um, agreeing to have win-win situations in all fronts. Now, um, again, when you have this kind of violence, you can see the violence against civilians rising, not because the cartels and the gangs are attaching are attacking um, the civilians per se, but because um, the civilians are members of the gangs and the cartels. And when they start being killed and, and they die, they are counted as part of the civilian population because, because it's not good looking to have a journal or to have a lot of people saying like, oh, well, a lot of people is being dead because they are members of the gangs. So normally that's where the mediatic interpretation and mediatic manipulation begins. Again, uh, at the same time, we also have cartel uh, versus cartel violence. This also refers to um, the war between the cartels uh, between to, to fight for control. The cartels versus the state violence. Uh, at this point, we have um, the, the cartels growing enough power to be able to challenge the state. Normally in, in a normal criminal organizations slash state relationship, the criminal organizations will try to hide from the state because the state has the ability to crush the criminal organizations and their activities. However, when you have highly organized criminal organizations, um, they will eventually infiltrate enough institutions and pay off enough politicians and, and uh, members of the law enforcement to be able to challenge the power of the state. So when the parts of the state try to control the crime back, they are gonna fight back to, against the state. Um, this has to do with uh, the new security strategies. When the cartels have enough power to challenge the state, the state will normally launch uh, direct operations by either the police or sometimes the army, like the cases of Mexico and Colombia. And well, the violence will be seen in terms of shootings and, and different problems between the authorities and the, the criminal organizations. One of the most relevant examples of this was the case of um, the assassination or the capture and, and death of Beltran Leiva in, in 2010, 2000, uh, yeah, 2010, 2011. And the president came out on television and said that in a very, in a very interesting military and Marines operation, they had managed to kill uh, this leader of, of a criminal organization in Mexico. And in retaliation, the organized criminal group went to the families of the of the military that participated on it, and they killed them all. So you start seeing retaliation from the criminal groups against civilians, but always related to the activities to the state. Now um, you have also retaliation from the drug trafficking organizations against the civil society, and this is to limit the capacity of law enforcement. Uh, this is also due to the corruption between drug trafficking organizations and the government and the impunity in which the criminal organizations are operating. Um, at this point, 
you can see that the state is very weakened, not maybe in the institutions, but in the application on, of the law. So this is two parts of the same problem. You have a state that may be very strong in terms of institutional and budget, but in the application, it is very weak. Um, at this point, the people that is affected are the civilians and the, and the civilians such as undocumented migrants. One of the best examples of, the, of this retaliation was the mass murder of 72 migrants in the state of Tamaulipas in 2010 by the Zetas. The Zetas were trying to make a statement about their power, their overall criminal power, and they killed 72 people all at once. And well, another example is a rehabilitation center massacres in Chihuahua. Uh, basically the criminal organizations and the cartels in Chihuahua start going to rehab centers, killing, killing the people inside, accusing them of, of being collaborators with either the, the authorities or other criminal organizations. Now, the identified, identified causes of violence related to the government have to do with uh, the strategies implemented by the government. So there is a risk that the implementation of strategies will create a spiral of violence. Every strategy generates a reaction from the criminal organization. So that's something that really needs to be taken into consideration by the authorities and the people that is planning such, such strategies. Uh, the magnitude of the reaction is related to the level of corruption, impunity and development. I'm mentioning this because sometimes when we implement uh, counter-narcotic policies or counter-criminal policies, it doesn't seem that, that the planation of such policies will include how the corruption of the state and the impunity of the authorities or, or the impunity perpetrated by the authorities will affect the implementation of the strategy. So at the end, if you don't realize that you as a state have a problem of uh, corruption and, and impunity, it doesn't matter if you have a brilliant strategy. If you don't consider those two facts, your strategy will fail at the moment of the implementation. Now, the violence observed in the cases of Mexico are, well, three stages. First, we started with military operations in the 1980s, trying to control the production of, of heroin and marijuana. And then we have uh, another strategy in the 90s, trying to target high-level high level personnel of the cartels, arresting them. But because we have corruption, the members that were arrested were still, um, were still leading the cartels from inside jail. Then on the third one is on the 2000, we have the war on drugs, and we have a lot of extraditions and a lot of elimination of the leaderships of the cartels. And well, the last one is officials abusing the power against the criminals. After the war on drugs started, oh, sorry. After the war on drugs started, uh, we, have, we had uh, the power that, that as uh, there were many, many leaders of the cartels being killed, um, we had much more cartels than at the beginning. So the more cartels you, the, the more leaders you kill, the more cartels there will burn from those because there's a vacuum of violence. Um, sorry. So this is the main, the main leaders of the cartels, but after they were detained or assassinated or killed, um, they were, the, the cartels subdivided in many, many parts. 
And that's mainly what, what generated the big problem in Mexico. As you can see in these maps, this is the first one, 2006. We have a few cartels. Then on 2010, this had divided. In 2013, we had more. And then in 2015, you have a lot of different cartels trying to control different territories. And this will show in terms of violence. This is some images of the war on drugs. And well, how did we see that in Mexico? We have this, the deaths per month per state. This is the, the chart that I show at the beginning. And if you look at this, each peak of violence, and I'm, I'm signaling this, has to do with specific moments of the war, even one operation or one killing of one, of one leader in, in the drug cartels. So if you go very specific at each peak of violence and each diminishing part of the violence, you will realize that it has something to do with different parts of the war on drugs at some point of history. And well, what's up to do? We have hope, and this is a promise of hope. Every time there's a new administration, we have a new part of new um, strategies and new ideas against organized crime. However, every administration has not only the responsibility of having, of having hope and of having a speech that they are gonna do things better, but they are the responsibility, they have the responsibility of acknowledging which parts of the state are not working correctly. Just changing the name like the new president is doing or just creating new, new institutions because the old ones were, were wrong does not really mean a de facto improvement of those institutions because you're hiring the same people. An example is the change of the name of the judicial power in Mexico. They change the name, but the people inside is the same. Hence, if you don't do an investigation of, or, or a plan in which you can improve either collusion or you can improve and, and diminish the, the possibilities for corruption or, or impunity, even if you change the name, even if you um, disappear one organization and generate another one, the future will not change because the implementation of the security policies will be affected by the same issues that all the governments are having, which are basically uh, corruption and impunity in which the criminals will be able to do whatever they want. And well, with that note, I will really ask to all the, to all the um, uh, attendants here today to always remember that if you're ever in a position to, to do a public policy, security public policy, don't be scared of realizing what are the problems within your institutions that will prevent your policy at the moment of application that will obstaculize that policy when it's applied by the same people you're trying to, to help. And with that note, I thank you for your attention and well, that's over. So thank you so much. And uh, if you have any questions, please uh, just make them in the chat. Now I'm going to proceed to present our next speaker. So our next, our next presentation will be made by three amazing speakers. Uh, the first one is William Silberto Jimenez Garcia. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Ministry of Science of Colombia. He's a doctor in social and human sciences, master in habitat and bachelor in environmental management. His current work examines 
areas of violence, organized crime, drug trafficking organizations, and vulnerability. He currently leads the network of knowledge on violence and crime, Red, La Red eh, Vicri, for the name in Spanish. And the next, the, the speaker that is going to talk with Williams is Natalia Bojorges Bedoya. Uh, she is the coordinator of GEIO Research Group at the Universidad Tecnológica de Pereira in Colombia. She is master in ecotechnology and bachelor's in industrial engineer. Her research interests are related to the field of statistics and engineering and education. The, the speaker that is also talked with them is Wilson Arenas Valencia. He is Dean of the Faculty of Business Science at the Uni Universidad Tecnológica de Pereira in Colombia. He is a PhD candidate in projects, math, in projects and he has a master's in statistics, and in statistics research, sorry, and a bachelor in industrial engineer. His research interests are related to systemic thinking. Uh, their presentation is really interesting. Uh, the title of the presentation is The Relationship Between Drug Trafficking and Social Disadvantage with Homicide, a Case Study in the Colombian Cities. And with that, I pass the word over to you guys. Um, welcome and, and thank you for being here. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. Uh, I share my, my, thank you very much. We are pleased to, uh, to be at this important event sharing our research results. Let's try to tell you from a common context, the particular situation of homicide in a Colombian city that is very connected to the global trade in goods and service. Uh, the city is Pereira is near to, is close to to Medellin and, and Cali, cities that uh, in the cities works uh, Jorge at the first presentation. Uh, this city um, has a strong market for drugs, both for local trade and for global trade of drugs. And it is city, uh, this city uh, has a high homicide rate, historical homicide rate. Uh, as um, can you see we're talking about the Latin American city similar, just like Rosario in Argentina, Belo Horizonte is the, the same history for the for the, the cities, these uh, Latin American cities. I'm sorry, I don't know why, what happened. Okay, uh, Latin American uh, continue with this uh, previous context. Let's look specifically uh, at the case study and located uh, geographically and politically. Uh, Latin America is the most uh, violent region in the world. The nearly uh, 2,500,000 people have died from violent causes in Latin America in the last 15 years. Colombia is a violent country. Uh, this is uh, not a secret. It despite a dramatic reduction uh, in homicide rates over the past five years its homicide rates remain among the highest in the region. Among the causes for the murderous violence uh, are the armed conflict uh, that has lasted uh, more than six decades, the death, social inequality, and the drug trafficking. Uh, being in Colombia, the main exporter of cocaine in the world. Based on the knowledge for the context, 
uh, we consider those hypotheses in this research. In the first hypothesis, we propose that the homicides are produced by the social disadvantages accumulated in the, in the territories. The second hypothesis is that the murders are caused by drug trafficking. Uh, both hypotheses do not restrict us to the uh, thinking that homicides cause caused uh, by multiple causes and that there is not in linearly in the construction of homicides as social, political, and ethical facts. However, we believe that um, there is a deficit in the knowledge of homicide despite the fact that in Colombia, um, 15,000 uh, 15, people have died each year on average, and that this deficit focus on understanding the multicausality of homicide and on understanding how social variables influence homicide. We say this because uh, a very common um, argument among politicians, social communicators, and uh, academia uh, itself is that homicide is produced in Colombia mainly or by drug trafficking. We do not, we do not want to deny uh, the drug trafficking is important, but because we are convinced that drug trafficking has a strong exploratory power. However, we believe that um, there are more there are more causes, and this is why this is what we want to demonstrate uh, with this model. We understand drug trafficking uh, as a set of activities that are carried uh, out in a planned manner to produce and commercialize uh, goods and services, in this case drugs, that are considered uh, by the legal uh, framework of almost all countries of the world uh, to be illegal. Drug trafficking is, product, is a productive system uh, based on scientific literature and technical knowledge of criminal operators. We have divided the chain of production and commercialization of drugs into four macro process. Uh, you can see uh, that process in this picture. In our research, uh, research we have concentrated on the, on the two that occur uh, or happen in the city of Pereira and that are traceable and measurable for us. Uh, in this case, DTV and DTC, commercialization and distribution. Uh, remember, uh, our city uh, has uh, two, uh, two um, global, two kind of uh, market, a local market and global market. The indicators, the indicators we work on this study uh, were drug seizure and um, drug uh, captures uh, for the police, for, for drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and marijuana. For us, a social disadvantage, disadvantage uh, are related to the ability of the population to access goods and service and to enjoy the rights and freedoms offered by the Colombian socialist state. With this definition, we are talking about material goods, intangible service and practice of, our good, of good living. Uh, when a family cannot access these uh, for these uh, goods and service, uh, freedoms, freedom too, we are talking about uh, it's being social disadvantaged. The indicators we work on this study were uh, uh, income of households and single parents household hidden uh, by women. 
to estimate uh, the relationship uh, between homicide, just like a Latin variable and drug traffic, trafficking and social disadvantage in the territorial uh, units study. In this case, uh, we use comunas and corregimientos that is a administrative unit, minimal uh, administrative unit uh, for Colombian legislation. We use the structural uh, equation uh, models uh, because it allows us to say, to similarly assign a series of dependency uh, relationships using multivariate techniques uh, such as uh, regression and factor analysis, where homicides was the uh, independent variable affected by non-observable or latent variables, in, in this case, uh, drug tra trafficking uh, and social disadvantage. Uh, PLSSM is a multivariate uh, analysis technique whose purpose is to test structural models, in this case for three variables. Uh, we use in this study a sam sampling methods. Our sample was composed for uh, 31 co uh, comunas and corregimientos. Uh, 19 uh, comunas in the urban area and 12 corregimientos in the rural area uh, for Pereira. So that information has provided for the police national, uh, national, uh, national police of Colombia uh, and statistics uh, national department and social development secretariat of Pereira. So this is our uh, theoretical model. Uh, we believe that homicides are caused by the drug trade and social disadvantage. The drug trade, after a factorial analysis, we find that is the best experience as follows. Captors have a greater, a greater incidence on homicides than drug seizures. Scientific, uh, scientific Scientific literature, I'm sorry, is scared. However, we found a similar study in Mexico, for example. Uh, in Ciudad Juarez, a study found the relationship between captures and homicides. The context of this city in Ciudad Juarez is one in which drug trafficking organizations dispute the, the monopoly of drugs commercialization and drug routes to the USA. The seizures are related to the captures, which is hardly logical. Obvious, uh, it's obvious, may, uh, maybe. We decide not to measure the relationship between seizures uh, and homicides because we, didn't, we did not find any evidence in the literature and because seizures uh, produce uh, uh, an economic impact, impact and are a political event on the part of the authorities. Censors destabilize the finance of the drug trafficking organizations, but they don't undermine the, con the confidence of their mem members, for example, and the consequence violence, as if the capture were happening. Uh, that uh, uh, happened in the Colombian cities. I don't know in, in other Latin American cities, but in Colombia, it happened. Uh, here can see uh, the evaluation of the models and the correlation, correlations of those evaluated. We see that uh, a period of 10 years, uh, since the, um, 2010, uh, 
the loading are mostly, uh, here the loading, are mostly highly significant uh, for the indicators of the latent variables, if you can see. Also, the CR and ABE in most years is significant according to the levels exposed in several studies that apply the uh, structural uh, equation models. Finally, here we see the evaluation of the relationship, social disadvantage uh, with violence, uh, drug trafficking with capture and capture with violence. With trafficking, remember it's seizure of drugs, of kind of drugs. Uh, we see that in, uh, we see a more significant relas relationship uh, between variables uh, almost every year. We obtain significant uh, the parts of variables evaluated in the model. We are struck by the variable of social disadvantage, uh, disadvantages uh, that obtain greater consistency and higher levels of significance than the variables of the drug trafficking. That is a, a, a important, uh, important results. Uh, finally, for conclusion, we found enough evidence to accept the first, uh, the first uh, hypothesis. Uh, homicides are produced uh, by social disadvantages. Uh, and we can, uh, we can say that because, uh, because we can find in, in other uh, literature, uh, scientific, scientific, scientific uh, literature, especially for the, from the theory of collective efficacy, such as res results has, uh, have already been anticipated. Uh, but uh, really in the uh, habitat scale, uh, scale uh, that not show the same results. Uh, for example, geographical sectors of cities where uh, low income, for instance in Pereira, uh, for uh, low income households are concentrated and more vulnerable to homicidal uh, violence. Households that are, are solely uh, female headed uh, tend to concentrate higher numbers of homicides. Uh, in this study, our area, these indicators are produced by situations such as the existence of an illegal drug market, uh, the recruitment of minors by drug trafficking organizations um, to the high levels of drug consumptions and the absence of the states in, this, in these areas of these uh, city areas. Uh, we believe uh, that understanding the impact of social disadvantages uh, will enable authorities to refine their strategies for reducing homicide and channel efforts uh, and resources uh, to address the, the problem. For example, uh, policymakers with our finding uh, may justify the creation of programs to improve uh, household income or for um, family planning or the strength of the violence of family uh, parenting as a strategy for reducing homicide. The, the result we obtain in this study opens a new field uh, of research to understand and counteract uh, the impact of homicide in Colombia and Latin American cities. For example, we can investigate the influence of relationship of sexual rights, the role of mothers and fathers 
and social cultural values of the family with issues such as uh, crime prevention, criminal careers, uh, organized, organized crime, and citizen uh, security management. Uh, for the second uh, hypothesis, uh, who relate a uh, homicide with uh, drug trafficking, uh, we, we can see uh, um, in our study, there was no consistent evidence that allowed us to accept this hypothesis, uh, as capture had no significant uh, relationship with homicides. Given these results, we believe that it's necessary uh, to consolidate methodologies that can more accurately measure the drug markets in, the, in cities and violence uh, that this market generates. Science in our study, it was not possible to construct an accurate measure of drug trafficking. Perhaps uh, with the data used, uh, we managed to prove, to prove uh, the police operation against drugs. Since the um, captures and seizures are made by the police at the action of this uh, state agency, the pains of the political will, uh, will to confront uh, the drug trafficking organization and to address the problem of drug marketing and consumption rather than actually reducing homicide in these cities. For example, in Peril is very complicated because the drug trafficking organization leads the local uh, government. Uh, it's clear that in order for drug trafficking to ex exist in a city, Traffickers need implementation of protective technologies, which are achieved by means of personal specialized in the use of violence and, the, and in the existence uh, of weapons that guarantee harm and lethality in this practice, which is why it's obvious uh, that in a place where mm, there is drug traffic, homicid homicidal violence is likely to occur. Uh, this results in the second hypothesis, which justifies an investigative process to measure the relationship uh, between drug markets and homicides uh, that can use more indicators than drug uh, sensors and captors. For example, counting the money collected by criminal organization, the number um, of children and young people who are recruited by drug trafficking organization, the real uh, operational capacity uh, that um, drug trafficking organization hubs in the city. Uh, infrastructure, for example, infrastructure personnel, uh, I don't know, uh, the capacity of the drug trafficking organization to corrupt uh, public officials, individuals. Uh, um, finally, I think that the other illegal markets that are operated with uh, drug trafficking organization resources, uh, arms, prostitution, illegal gambling, uh, among others. So this is, uh, this is all, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Um, it was a very interesting presentation. And now we're going to go to the questions. Uh, I will ask you if you have a question just uh, to type it down in the chat if you can. So the first question is to Jorge from Carolina Sampo. Um, she says, I really don't think, okay, that's not a question. Uh, sorry. Uh, Tamia Brito, I think you have a question. Tamia, are you listening to me? Do you want to ask your question? 
Uh, yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to ask them for me, but okay. <laughs> yeah, ah, my, question, <laughs> my question is to Jorge. I was wondering whether in your research, uh, were you able to find uh, information regarding local gangs interaction, uh, not, not between the gangs per se and the governmental officials and authorities, but rather among themselves in terms of uh, direct and indirect violence and how those interactions may, may have taken place. Thank you. Thank you, Tamia. Um, so um, the, the thing here is that, remember, I, I was talking about a context in which state-sponsored protection rackets were going on. And this was the reason why there was such a low homicide rate in Bogota overall. So if it's true that there were like kind of uh, violence in between or competitive violence following Peter Reuter's concept, competing violence between gangs, what is paradoxically here is that after the, the state crackdown on the drug market, and uh, the stress of their, you know, availability to sell drugs, what happened is that they relied on disciplinary violence towards their longtime clients and consumers in order to keep control of them. Uh, because, of course, state-sponsored protection rackets have, uh, have two kind of key characteristics. The first of, of it is that the state capacity to enforce the law. So Bogota is the strongest city and has like the strongest criminal, local criminal justice system in Colombia. This means we have a police department who is, a, who is capable of uh, enforcing the law. And that is a key asset in order to sell protection, which was what was happening under the Bronx. They were selling protection, or they were selling enforcement against competitors. And the second characteristic is that the criminals or local gangs have the capacity to pay for their protection and to comply with the conditions of this protection. And these conditions were overall to maintain a low homicide rate. That's why they relied most of all not on competitive violence, but on disciplinary violence. And that's related to the comment of Carolina as well, which I agree with is that the fact that in Latin America, violence is so normalized and there's a moral economy of violence. In this particular case, it was so much normalized because we were talking about violence of the disposable ones, about sex workers, violence towards homeless people, violence towards drug users, invisible violence. Uh, so I will leave it there in order to go into other, other questions. Thank you. Great, um, thanks for the answer. Um, I'm going to read the next question for the sake of time. So Jaime Palma asks Jorge, so you said the criminal enterprises are successful uh, because criminals can assure social control better than territorial one. What happens when even urban governments don't have territorial control of the, over their territorial boundaries? 
it is because criminals have social control on those territories that territorial governments can't have an effective security policy against organized crime groups? Or is it because that when two or more um, municipalities can't control their boundaries, that organized crime group is successful in social control in those places? Uh, thanks. So I, I think it's, it's kind of uh, halfway between, between the, these two, two options. Because uh, in, in Latin America, I think that criminal governance has like two or three manifestations. The first of it of, is that criminal governance as a self-help mechanism, as a way of ordering the social context or performing security or justice there where the state can't do it for several reasons. The second of it is uh, criminal governance as a manifestation of collusion. And I think that there's plenty of evidence, for example, uh, Alexandra Avejo's work on Medellin showing how in Latin America, the state has to kind of negotiate with extra legal groups, let's don't call it criminals, but extra legal groups of different sort how to govern, how to perform social control. And that uh, has turned into like three kinds of criminal governance or manifestation of these kind of social controls. First of all, criminal groups providing services at the local level. That's why it's state that is so important to rely on the street level bureaucracies in order to you know, uh, fight crime because sometimes like national plans, strategic plans are defined at the very local street level. And that's where actually local everyday arrangements between criminals and the state take place. The second one is criminals as, as uh, local governance arrangements. So for example, you can see it in terms of street justice, uh, public service delivery, public or private security, uh, invisible borders between um, neighborhoods, the prohibition to, uh, to rob, to mock, the prohibition to consume drugs at certain hours in certain places. And there's a full variety of, of ways in which criminal governance, in which criminals provide this local governance. And the third one, which is very interesting uh, in terms of Alexandra Vega's work on managing and other cities is when criminals pose as uh, uh, citizens or for example, participatory budget, and they start to capture the state at the local level. And I think that kind of challenges the traditional perspective on organized crime as a non-political phenomenon. Because in the case of Latin America, I do think that organized crime should be studied as a form of political violence. Uh, thank you, Jorge. Thank you very much for that, that question. Again, I remind you all, if you want to make a question, you can do it in the chat and we'll read it. So the next question is from Carolina Sampo about the Mexican presentation. Um, are the causes of violence and are, are the causes of violence, are them independent? Where is no link? Okay, so uh, Carolina is asking if there's a link between the, the causes of violence. Um, yes, there are, there are, there's a link between the causes of violence and 
each vi each type of violence in each country has different links in, in between. For example, um, one cartel can have in inter-cartel violence in which one cartel is warring another cartel. And then this cartel B, for example, will ally with some of the criminal gangs in the area or criminal gangs in the other cartel's area to start fighting back. And then the other cartel will do the same thing with other criminal organizations. And then you will end up having not only a conflict between cartel A and cartel B, but you will also have a conflict between gang A and gang B, which are helping the cartels. So most of the, uh, of the violence and the causes of violence are interlinked, but each violence um, type in each state and in each case has different interrelations. So that's, that's from each case. That's what I can say. Uh, thanks, Carolina, for your question. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time right now. So uh, we thank you very much for all your participation. And thank you for listening to us today. For those of you who are interested in contacting us, I think I talk for all the speakers when I say you can contact us or we can also provide our details in the chat. I'm going to type my email in case you're interested. And I suggest, or I, I think uh, Williams, Natalia and Jorge are going to do also the same. And well, thank you very much. And well, with that note, uh, we conclude this presentation and we're really happy to see all of you in this Global Initiative Conference. You were listening to Latin American Drug Crimes. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organised Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.